passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Have you ever failed God? Have you ever found yourself at a place where you thought that you were possibly beyond hope? That God didn't care about you anymore? That God had written you off as hopeless? That you were forgotten? That he had given up on you? Maybe you were at a point where you had messed up and you thought it was to the point of no return. Or you kept falling into the same sin over and over and over and you thought to yourself, surely God is sick of me. If you find yourself at that place, coupled with long silence and hearing nothing from God, feeling far from God, if you find yourself at that place, the the story of Genesis 17 is for you. You see, Genesis 17 tells us the story of Abraham right after one of these moments in his life. Right after one of these seasons in his life. It takes place 13 years after Genesis 16. 13 years after Abraham and his family attempted to circumvent the will of God. And God responded in silence in their attempts to get a child. See, Abraham and Sarah had decided that Abraham should sleep with his, uh, with his wife's maidservant, Hagar. This was a culturally acceptable practice in that day. And at first, it seemed like God also approved of what they had done. And then there was silence. Even though it worked when waiting didn't, this blessing soon turned into a disaster. God was silent for 13 years. And they waited for God to speak. And they waited for God to speak. And they waited for God to speak. And nothing happened. It seemed like God had given up on them. It seemed like God didn't want anything to do with them. And maybe you can relate with that. As I mentioned earlier, if you feel that way, or if you have felt that way, the story of Genesis 17 is for you. It tells us a vastly different story. It tells us of the unfathomable grace of God for his children. And even more than that, it tells us how to respond to that undeserved grace that God has given us. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis 17. The text will also be on the screen behind me. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I might make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, And to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. 
I mentioned that this text takes place 13 years after Genesis 16. And that's very clear from the way that this passage begins. It's, it's very clear that a lot of time has passed. The last words of Genesis 16 say this. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Then right at the beginning of chapter 17, just a few words later, when Abram was 99 years old. The book of Genesis is making clear to us that a lot of time has passed. And I just want us to, to think about that, not skip over this. Where were you 13 years ago? A lot has happened 13, in the last 13 years. Life is a lot different than it was 13 years ago. For some of us, it was much different. This might show my age, but I was a freshman in high school 13 years ago. A lot can happen 13 year, in 13 years. I don't want us to skip over this because it tells us a little bit about what's going on between Abraham and his relationship with God. You see, in Genesis 16, Abraham has his first son. And for 13 years, he gets to watch that son grow and turn into a teenager. He gets to experience the joys of his first steps and his first words. He gets to experience the joys of teaching his son Ishmael how to be a shepherd. He also gets to experience the pains of seeing scraped knees, bloody palms, and bruises. A lot can happen in 13 years. See, Abraham is older now. He's far older than he was than God first spoke to him in Genesis chapter 12. 25 years have passed since then, and it seems like God has forgotten him. For the last 13 years, it seems as though God has forgotten them, and they now live an uneventful life. God has promised much to them, and yet he hasn't spoken to them for over a decade. I wonder what Abraham was thinking during that time. If Abram wondered whether God was angry with him. If God had decided to forget their promises. If God had decided to just leave Abraham in his disobedience. To Abraham, I believe the silence of heaven is deafening and dreadful for those 13 years. Think of Sarah. For 13 years, Sarah has watched in pain. As her husband lives out his dream of a son. But it is not hers. For 13 years she has watched her, her, her husband Abraham and, and Hagar and their son live and exist as a perfectly happy family of three. That doesn't have any room for her in it. And the pain multiplies each and every day. I imagine that she interpreted the silence of heaven a little bit differently. I imagine that instead of thinking that God had forgotten them, that she thought that God had stopped talking to them because he had fulfilled their promises. He had fulfilled his promises to them. There was no need to speak to Abraham. There was no need to continue his relationship with Abraham, for he had provided the promised child. A lot can happen in 13 years. As we open this text, we all know that God is not done with Abraham. After 13 years of silence, God speaks again to him. He reaffirms his covenant with them made 
in Genesis chapter 15. Remember what a covenant is. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. A covenant is essentially an unbreakable commitment between two different parties. Covenants were very popular and very common in ancient times between two different nations. They were political covenants, signs that were unbreakable agreements between the two of them. Today, another example of a covenant is a marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It is an unbreakable commitment between two people. And in Genesis 15, we see that same commitment between God and Abraham. You see, in in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham to take a bunch of animals and cut them in half. He says, lay half of the animal on one side and half of the animal on the other side. And according to tradition, what would happen is that the two parties who are entering into a covenant would walk through the middle of these animals, would walk through the blood of these animals that pooled in the middle. And it was a sign between the two of them saying that so May I be like these animals if I do not keep up my end of the deal. It was a way of invoking a self-curse upon yourself to say, I will keep this covenant, and if I do not, let me be like these animals. That's what we see in Genesis 15. But what's miraculous, extremely unique in Genesis 15, is that Abraham doesn't walk through the middle of these pieces. Only God walks through the middle of these pieces. God is the one who says that I, if you break the covenant, I will be the one who bears the curse. If I break the covenant, I will be the one who bears the curse. And that same covenant is in view here 13 years later. It's the same covenant that's in view thousands of years later at the cross. Because the reality is Abraham broke the covenant. You have broken the covenant, I have broken the covenant, and yet God's covenant remains everlasting. And it is this covenant that Abraham enters into once more with God, when God calls himself God Almighty. Notice that that is a a relatively common word, or a common phrase to us, God Almighty, a very common title for God. Many of us are probably familiar with the Hebrew term behind this, El Shaddai. Thank you, Amy Grant. And while it's possibly, it's pretty common to us to understand El Shaddai, we've heard that before, it's a relatively uncommon phrase in the Bible. It's relatively uncommon in the Old Testament, but every time it's used, especially in Genesis, it's a reminder of God's power. It's a reminder of who God is. And in Genesis, it highlights the difference between what God has promised and the reality that Abraham And his children are experiencing. When God calls himself El Shaddai, when God calls himself God Almighty, he's saying, I realize what reality looks like. I realize that you do not have children, that you do not have a great nation, that you do not possess this land yet. But I am God Almighty, and I have promised these things to you, and so you can be assured that I will follow through. That's what Abraham is supposed to realize here when God recognizes and, and, and tells himself or tells Abraham that he is God Almighty. See, I think for decades Abraham has had the wrong view of God. For decades, Abraham has had the wrong view of God. I think that's one of the reasons why Abraham is so unfaithful. You look at Genesis chapter 12, Abraham flees to Egypt rather than trusting God. 
Genesis 16, Abraham decides to uh, trust in cultural conventions rather than placing his trust in God. And I think that the reason is, is because he doesn't understand who God is. He doesn't understand what God is like. He doesn't see God as God Almighty. He instead sees God as God distant and unconcerned. I think that's a good reminder to us as well. It is important. It matters how we view God. In fact, how we view God directly affects the way that we live. If we think of God as someone who is distant, as someone who is unconcerned with our lives, with our day-to-day living, then of course we're going to live like God doesn't exist. Of course we're going to not find the stench of sin to be that strong and will oftentimes be an, an enticed into sin. Of course, we won't feel the urgency of living in the shadow of God Almighty, and so we'll find worship to be somewhat boring. We'll find prayer to be somewhat useless. We'll find our Bible reading to be dry. All of this comes from an improper view of God. Ask yourself, what is your view of God? Do you view God as God Almighty? Or do you view God as God distant and unconcerned? God starts his conversation here after 13 years of silence by reminding Abraham of who he is, that he is God Almighty. And so he continues this discussion with Abraham, and he assures Abraham that the promises that he has given to him are still intact. This is good news, and Abraham needed some assurance of this, but he also reminds Abraham that these promises are not just for Abraham. They are for all nations. You see, in Genesis 12, when God first reveals himself to Abraham, he promises him six things. I want to just read verses two and three. It says this, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The first three things that Abraham is promised by God focus on very personal things. And the last three things are very global things. God is focusing on how Abraham is blessed so that he can bless others. That's why we see here that Abraham is promised that he will bear a multitude of nations. This is what his name change is all about. This is why he's referred to as being exceedingly fruitful. God talks about kings coming from Abraham, that his offspring will be included in this blessing for all nations. And I just want us to take a moment, step back, and recognize that this is a part of the big story of Genesis. Part of the big story of, really, the Bible As we've been working our way through Genesis, I think a lot of times we can focus primarily on the individual stories. And that's important for us, but it's always good to take a step back and look at how God is at work. And how God is molding not just the story of Abraham, but the story of human history. In Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve rebel against God, God promises that someday he will restore everything. One day he will repair the broken relationships that sin has destroyed. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises to Eve and to Adam that they will one day have a son who will destroy the offspring of the serpent. As we work our way through Genesis Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, even into the story of Abraham, one of the questions is in the face of human 
disobedience, in the face of human unfaithfulness, is God's promise in Genesis 3 still intact? And every chapter gives us a little glimpse that, yes, God is still faithful. Yes, God is still at work. Yes, God still has a plan and a promise that he will one day fulfill. Then we get to the story of Abraham. And here, as we look at the story of Abraham, as we work our way back into looking at this promise from God, it's clear as he promises that this offspring will, will be a blessing for every nation, that God will continue to be at work. You see, his promise here in Genesis chapter 17 is clearly pointing to Jesus. It's clearly pointing to the one who one day will be a blessing to every nation. One day he will be at work. God is, God's plan is not thwarted by the disobedience of you, of me, or of Abraham here in this story. God is still at work. And so God points out what the heart of this covenant is at the very end of verse 8. And he says, I will be their God. That's, that's the focus, the, the sum of this covenant agreement, that God will be the God of Abraham's offspring. This refers to his natural offspring in the Old Testament, yes, but it also refers to us, his spiritual offspring after the New Testament. God will be our God because of the promise he has made to Abraham. This phrase, I will be their God, it's a very unique phrase. This is the first time that it's found in the Bible. and It refers to a special, unique relationship that is being developed here between Abraham and between God. And what we see throughout Scripture is not only is that promise, that, that covenant relationship still intact, but God has made this promise to be unbreakable. God has made this promise to be unshakable. It's an everlasting covenant between him and between the offspring of Abraham. He is telling Abraham, I am yours and you are mine. And that is indeed good news for Abraham. It's good news for Abraham. But you might be saying, well, what does God want from Abraham? After all, it does seem like he says, you know what? You should, you should live in a certain way, Abraham, if you're going to be my, uh, if I'm going to be your God. And, and indeed, that's what he does say here. Notice how he, he recalls Abraham to respond to the grace that he has given him. He uses two phrases. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Now, all of us can probably understand what be blameless means. Be blameless, uh, live a morally upright life, to live righteously, to live holy. But what about this phrase, walk before God? Whenever we see walk before God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is referring to us being God's representatives here on this earth. We are called to be God's representatives on this earth. One theologian puts it this way. In the Bible, whenever God walks before someone, this expression means to give guidance and protection. Conversely, whenever people walk before God or are told to walk before God, it means that they serve as his emissaries or diplomatic representatives. It means to be God's agent or diplomatic messenger and representatives in this world. When the world looks at them, they will see what it is like to have a relationship with God. And they will see what God intended for humanity. What does it mean when God says, walk before me? He is saying, I want you to be my son. 
God, I want you to, to have me as your God. And I want you to live in a certain way so that when people look at you, that you represent me well. I want you to live in a certain way that when people look at you, they know what it means to follow me. They know what it means to live with me. They, they know what it means for me to have my original plan for humanity. Walk before me means to be my representative. Paul says the exact same thing in the New Testament. Ephesians 5. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Colossians 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. 1 Thessalonians 2. We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Friends, God calls every single one of us to walk before him. He calls each and every one of us to live as his representatives, to live as his ambassadors, as a response to the grace of the covenant that he has made with us. And so ask yourself, do you see yourself as God's representative? Do you see yourself as God's ambassador? Do you see yourself as someone that God intends to live in such a way that others see you and they see his plan for humanity? That's what these first few verses are reminding us, that God expects his people to live holy lives in response to his grace. God expects his people to live holy lives in response to his grace. That is the calling for Abraham, and is the calling for each of us as well. Let's continue in Genesis chapter 17, picking up in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh and an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In response to this covenant, God asks for a sign. And I'm sure all of us are aware of what circumcision is, but, but we might be curious about what the, what the significance of it is. What is the reason that God has asked for circumcision in response? Well, let's take a look. First, as you study this passage, you may notice that uh, this is a very global thing. If you notice that this is not something that is just for Abraham and his family, but every single person who associates themselves with Abraham is called to be uh, circumcised. And this is significant for us. It's significant because I think a lot of times when we look at the Old Testament, we can think of it as a bit exclusive and the New Testament as inclusive. Where basically if you are in the Old Testament and you want to have a relationship with God, you have to be a son of Abraham. Whereas if you are in the New Testament, you can be a Gentile as well. And so if you're a Babylonian living at the time of of Abraham and you want to follow God, well, tough luck. You have to wait a couple thousand years before you're able to worship God. But that's not what is in view here. 
Notice that every single person who associates themselves with Abraham has to be circumcised. This is a reminder to us that God has made a way for people to worship him from the very beginning. God's covenant is is more exclusive, yes, than than it is in the New Testament. They're not the same thing. But at the same time, God has made a way for anyone who wants to worship him to worship him. The Bible is actually filled with examples of people who aren't of Abraham's descent and who are considered to be faithful, considered to worship God. Rahab in the book of Joshua is not a descendant of Abraham, and yet she associates herself with the people of Israel. Ruth and her family are Moabites, and yet they associate themselves with the people of Israel. Uriah the Hittite in the time of David, he is a Hittite, which is not a a member of the people of Israel. Even Caleb, if you look at the stories of of Joshua and Caleb found in Numbers and, and Deuteronomy and Joshua, Caleb is not an Abraham, one of Abraham's descendants. He is a Gentile who has associated himself with the promises of God. As we look at circumcision, it's important for us to recognize that this is a, a global thing. This is a, it's a big deal because it is a part of God's relationship, not just with Abraham's descendants, but with anyone who would associate themselves with the covenant that God has made with Abraham. So that's the first thing for us. Second, it's important for us to recognize that circumcision wasn't exclusively an Israelite thing. Many other nations practiced circumcision in ancient times. Uh, In fact, most nations surrounding Israel practiced circumcision. There were a couple exceptions, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, the Philistines. These people didn't practice circumcision, but, but most other nations practiced circumcision. And just because circumcision is common doesn't mean that every single other nation uh, practiced circumcision the exact same way as Israel did. Other nations, such as Egypt, when they practiced circumcision, only certain groups would be circumcised. The priests would be circumcised and the king would be circumcised. Other nations, they would practice circumcision as a rite of passage into adulthood rather than having it be something that takes place eight days after birth. And so while in one sense circumcision is nothing new, it is at the same time something that is unique. I think a lot of times when we think of circumcision, we think of it as one of the ways that God took the people of Israel and separated them, made them different from every single other nation on the face of the planet. But we have to realize that circumcision is not a public sign. It's not a sign distinguishing between the people of Israel and the nations surrounding them. It is instead a private sign. Think about it. Circumcision is not something that you see every day. You don't see the, circum- the, work of, the fruit of circumcision in other people. It's a very private sign. It is reserved for a man. It is reserved for a wife. And when the man is younger, it is reserved for his parents. And for each of these groups, it is a habitual sign. It's something that they frequently see. They are frequently reminded of the covenant between God and them. And they are reminded to raise themselves and raise their children to follow God as a part of that covenant. Circumcision is both unique and common in ancient times. But we have to wonder, or we have to ask, what what does it mean? 
This has been a, a source of confusion throughout church history because uh, different people ha- have looked at this in different ways. But I think the best answer to what circumcision means, the significance of this practice, is to look at the purpose in the surrounding nations. This is why it doesn't tell us in this passage what circumcision means. It's because the, the common understanding of circumcision was, was clear to the people of that day. Many other nations use this as a rite of passage, but that doesn't fit the context. So what did other nations use this as? In Egypt, they used circumcision only for the king. It was a sign for the king that they were a son of the gods. That they had sonship with the gods. And I think for Israel, it was a similar sign. It was a similar sign of their status as children of God. That God considered them to be their children, but also the responsibilities of being God's children. Soren Kierkegaard is a Danish theologian from the 1800s, and he described the responsibilities of sonship when he put it this way. Uh, The prospect of adoption, the prospect of being a child of the king is an offense. It is too close. It is the sort of closeness that requires giving up one's own identity. Rather than sonship, we would rather that the king send us some money or a letter to cherish as a relic. But sonship asks for so much more. Sonship requires full identity. Sonship requires your entire life. If we're honest, I think sometimes we would rather than be children of God, we would rather instead have God as a distant relative instead. We would be able to tell people that we were related to God. And yet there wouldn't be a great pressure on us, a great expectation on us to change our lives. But when we live as children of the king, it requires much of us. We must represent God well in our lives. And circumcision was a reminder to the people of Israel of just that. It was a reminder that they are to live in such a way that is honoring to God. And represents him well. So first, circumcision is a sign, a reminder that they are God's children. But also, in Egypt, it was for the priests. It was for consecration into serving God. Exodus chapter 19 says this, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Just in the same way that priests were circumcised in ancient Egypt, so also the people of Israel were circumcised as a sign that they were set apart for God. They were set apart for service to God. See, for Abraham, circumcision is a reminder that he is a child of God. It is also a reminder that he has responsibilities to follow God, to serve God, and he has been set apart for those responsibilities. It is a daily reminder to him and to his children and to his descendants that he has been called by God to be God's representative. He has been called by God to walk before God. Same thing is true, not just for his descendants, but for the rest of his house. As you read this, you might wonder, why, why does God choose a sign that women are unable to participate in? 
think there are three reasons. First, the focus is not on the ritual, but on the significance behind the ritual. God takes a cultural practice, and he, he uh, brings it into this covenant with the same purposes. The focus is not on the ritual, but on the purpose behind the ritual. Second, remember Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 talks about in marriage, man and woman become one flesh. In a way, in a very real sense, it is unnecessary for a woman to be circumcised because both are circumcised as they become one flesh. And then third and finally, circumcision is not an end to itself. Circumcision is not the main focus. Throughout the Bible, it talks about circumcising your heart. That is the focus on doing something that, that lives in, in such a way that you can be holy before God. Something that both men and women can do. God requires circumcision as a part of his covenant with Abraham because he wants them to remember the calling that he has placed on their lives. And that calling is this. As God's people, we are his representatives in this world. As God's people, we are his representatives in this world. That lays the foundation for this covenant lays the foundation for really the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament as well. As we go into the rest of this chapter, we're, we're just going to briefly look at, at these next two sections uh, because we've spent a, a great deal of time on those. So, so let's go ahead and pick up in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall, call, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. When Sarah, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Here, God, as he's talking about this covenant, he pulls back the curtain to show Abraham how he plans to accomplish his purposes. And he promises to, to accomplish those purposes with a miracle. Sarah will bear a child. Of course, Abraham is completely taken aback. He responds to God in joyful disbelief. And he offers up Ishmael to God, saying that, you know what, God, I just want you to use Ishmael. I don't want this to be too hard for you. I'm just content with him. I love Ishmael. Please, just use him. And responding in this way, it shows that Abraham doesn't understand the purpose that God has for this promise. He doesn't understand what God is trying to do in Abraham's life. What God wants to do is God wants to use a miracle to accomplish his purposes so that every single person knows who, it, who is at work. So that every single person knows who is to receive the credit. He wants this story to be impossible 
without him. He wants Abraham and Sarah to tell their grandchildren about how God stepped in and saved the day to provide the birth of their dad. God wants this story to be impossible without him. I think God wants the same thing for our lives too. I think God wants the same thing for our lives as well. God wants us to live in a way that cannot be explained naturally. God wants us to live in a way that means that we can't explain our lives without him, that we take our calling to be blameless so seriously, that we take our calling to be his representatives so seriously that our lives defy natural explanation. That's really the focus here. The purpose of Abraham's life, the purpose of your life, the purpose of my life is to give God glory. We exist to glorify God. You see, this verse reminds us that God works in order to glorify himself. God works to, in order to glorify himself. And that might rub you the wrong way. It might sound like it's a little prideful of God to glorify himself. Well, let's just think about that for a second. If God is the greatest being in the entire universe, then it's not prideful for God to point to himself. It's, it's only reasonable for God to point to himself. In fact, if God were to say, you know, go to somewhere else for your salvation, give glory to something else, then he would be selling himself short. And more importantly, he'd be selling us short of his glory. God works in order to glorify himself. And the wonderful good news is that that's the exact same thing that you and I need. That's the best thing for us. This is why God promises Isaac rather than using Ishmael. This is why God uses a 90-year-old barren woman to provide an offspring for Abraham. He works for his own glory. That's the focus of the entire Bible. It's the focus of what should be our lives as well. And so let's take a look at how Abraham responds to this calling to God's glory. In the last few verses here. It says this. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Briefly, just notice Abraham's response here. First, Abraham responds immediately. He responds immediately to the calling that God has placed on his life. He doesn't wait a few days. He doesn't research how to make circumcision less painful. He responds immediately. And God asks us to do the same thing. Respond immediately to his grace. Respond immediately to his calling for obedience. Second, notice also that his response is wholehearted. Abraham does exactly what God has called him to do. I'm sure there were grumblings in the camp from those who were not his offspring about this new calling for them. And yet Abram responds wholeheartedly. 
by circumcising every single person who is a part of his covenant community. And third, Abraham is obedient. He does exactly what God calls him to do, without question. As we saw, he does it immediately and wholeheartedly. And so ask yourself, am I responding to God's grace with immediate, wholehearted obedience? See, God asks us to do the exact same thing. He asks us to respond to his grace immediately. He asks us to respond to his grace wholeheartedly. And he asks us to respond to his grace with obedience. And so ask, are you doing just that? Am I responding to God's grace with immediate, wholehearted obedience? As we close, if we were to sum up Genesis 17, I think that we could say that it is focusing and pointing to this one simple truth. Invisible grace makes visible saints. Invisible grace makes visible saints. God wants each and every one of us to live as his visible representatives here on this earth. That was his plan for Abraham. That was his plan for Israel. That's his plan for us, his church today, to live as his visible representatives here on this earth. And so ask yourself, what is God asking me to do to make his invisible grace visible in my life? What is God asking me to do to take his invisible grace and give it flesh, make it visible in my life? For some of you, he may be calling you to live in a way that is inexplicable without him. He may be calling you to to change your financial commitments, your time commitments, by letting go of the weights that are holding you back from wholehearted obedience. For others of you, he might be calling you to address a certain area in your life, your anger with others, your complacency towards God, your battle with envy, even your perfectionism. What is God calling you to do to make his invisible grace visible in your life? You see, God expects much of us as his children. But the good news is, even when we fail, God remains faithful to us. Just look at Abraham's life. God had a calling for Abraham to live blameless, to walk before him. And yet in Genesis 12, as we already saw, He instead flees to Egypt rather than trusting God. In Genesis 16, he he sleeps with another woman. Uh, In Genesis chapter 20, we're going to see in a couple weeks that he does the exact same thing that he did in Egypt with a different nation. And in Genesis chapter 21, he gets in an argument about a well that he may or may not have dug. He is far from perfect. He fails miserably at times to be God's representative on this earth, and yet God's grace for him remains. God continues to work through him. God continues to use him. When you fail, and you will fail, and I will fail, all of us will screw up from time to time. Do not be discouraged, but instead remember the grace that we respond to and ask yourself, How can I make the invisible grace of God visible in my life today? Let's pray. God, thank you for this calling that you have placed on our lives. And I ask that you would give us the grace to live it out. You would give us the grace to follow you wholeheartedly in everything that we do. 
And God, when we fail, when we fall short, that we would run back to you, that we would trust you, knowing that your grace is sufficient for us, even in our weakness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.